I uh, want to introduce, we have a guest preacher this morning, and his name is James Raymond. Now, some of you know James' name, and you may remember him. Um, we've been supporting him as a church almost since the beginning of our being a church. And uh, he's going to talk a little bit about the ministry that he's been doing over the last couple years. But we've been supporting him for a while as a church. And then um, he's got a new ministry that he's starting. I think he's going to tell us a little bit about that as well. And you may remember him from our uh, Gospel and Ramadan event that we did back in May of 2017. And James led us in that as well. Um, what else do we want to say about James? Uh, he's got a really cool accent, so you'll enjoy that as well. Sound City, will you just uh, join me in welcoming James Raymond? Go ahead, James, come on up. All right, and as James gets ready uh, and steals himself to, uh, to teach this morning, our friend Jenny's going to come, and she's going to read from Psalm 45 and get us going. This is the word of the Lord. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Good morning, sound citizens. Wait, why are you laughing? What else would you be called? Um, So so my name is James. Uh, The accent is British just to save you guessing. Um, I've been in America uh, for six years, and I moved to Seattle the same time that Pastor Aaron moved here. And um, I'm married. I have uh, four kids. Um, before I came here, I tried to kind of like look up, figure out what the dress code was for people who were preaching at Sound City. And unfortunately, my Batman shirt was in the laundry, and I couldn't get an inflatable T-Rex costume in time. Um, <laughs> So um, I, uh, I run um, a nonprofit called the Al-Maida Initiative, and I've been working with the Muslim population in Seattle for um, about six years now. And um, the last few years, I've been doing that with, with crew, and I've been uh, doing some you know, outreach there around the University of Washington campus and now seeking to take that to the next level. So because the elders asked, I'm going to share a quick story about what that looks like um, but this really all started coming to a head in November. I was outside of my church greeting at the 5 p.m. service, which I'd never go to, but I was there this time. And uh, I saw a woman leaving who I didn't recognize. Um, the moral of this story, by the way, is greet strangers. You don't know who you're going to meet. But I, I saw a woman leaving who I didn't recognize. And I said, hey, I don't think we know each other yet. And she's like, what? I said, you and I, we've not met yet. Like, what? We've not met before. It's like, no, this is my first time here. It's like, great, what brings you here? And she said, oh, I grew up Muslim. I decided I didn't believe that anymore. I tried being nothing, and that felt empty, and now I'm trying this. It's like, okay, where are you from? Saudi Arabia. It's like, awesome, which city? Uh, a place called Safwa. It's like, well, I know where that is. That means you grew up Shia Muslim, right? And she's like, how did you know that? And, and she went from, you know, 
being, uh, you know, not really wanting to talk to really wanting to talk after that. And we got coffee that Friday, and the place she was at is that, you know, she liked the vibe of Christianity, but didn't really, you know, know what Christians believed, and had this assumption that the Bible kind of ended with Jesus on the cross, and then everything after that was kind of guesswork. The Christians had come along and said, he died and rose from the dead. The Muslims came along and say, Allah rescued Jesus from the cross, and that it was kind of a mystery. But I just read through the last three chapters of Matthew with her, and she said, oh, it does say he died and rose from the dead. Okay, but practically, what difference does that make? I said, okay, in the Islamic version of events, Allah loved Jesus so much that he rescued him from the cross. In the biblical version of the story, uh, God loves you so much that he put Jesus on the cross so that if you trust in him, you can know with certainty that you're forgiven. And she said, that makes so much sense. I believe that. Um, so she's been, she's been rolling with us ever since. Um, but being from Saudi Arabia, it's very difficult for her to have conversations about this with um, her family. So uh, my co-conspirator, Russ, and I, you know, who runs the Almeida Initiative with me, we helped her put together this big dinner, which um, Pastor Aaron and Kyle came to. And we had um, 35 Christians and 35 Muslims show up to these things and spread throughout the room, having conversations. And our, and our goal is to scale that up. We want to holistically equip the church in Seattle to meaningfully engage the Muslim community with friendship and gospel conversations. So, that's, so, so watch this space in the next year. We're hoping to help Sound City um, do that work. I mean, this is an area with a ton of Muslims. Um, but I'm not ultimately here to talk about this today. I am here to talk about uh, Psalm 45. So thank you so much for having me today. Um, Let's have a look at this. So who here has already been to a wedding this summer? Who's going to weddings this summer? So so weddings are super interesting to me because, you know, it's always a joyful occasion, but it's underpinned by some really, really solemn promises that are being made, to be with a person forever, to forsake all other bonds, to be, to, to be with someone until death, right? This is, you know, undeniably heavy, yet it's, you know, cloaked in this, you know, celebration. Um, and so that's what Psalm 45 is talking about. And, and the interesting thing about the Psalms, I don't know if you, you know this, but there's three major world religions that believe that the Psalms are divinely inspired. You know, obviously Judaism and Christianity believe in the divine inspiration of the Psalms, right? That these are words from God. But also, interestingly, the Quran in four different places, in, you know, at least in the 17th chapter of the Quran, um, actually mention the Psalms as being divinely inspired. So an enormous percentage of the world's population should believe that the Psalms are words from God, written to us so that we would know how to appropriately worship and honor God. So so with that in mind, why on earth is there a psalm about a wedding? that's That's what this is. Psalm 45 is essentially a psalm about a royal wedding. And no, I didn't watch it, by the way. Um... I saw the bad lip-reading version, but not the, not the full thing. Um, so, the, so if we have this you know, portrayal of a wedding, the question is, why? In a, in a collection of books, songs written to worship God, why are we talking about weddings? Um, 
So let's, let, let's, let's read this again, um, starting in verse 1. To the choir master, according to the lilies, a maskil of the sons of Korah, a love song, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one. In your splendor and majesty, in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies and the people's fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of a fear. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and forget your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your father shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Lord God, thank you for this word that you have spoken to us, that you have preserved through the ages. Thank you that we can hear it today and be instructed by it. I ask that you would apply it to our heart and you'd apply it to our minds and you'd bless us with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we dig into this, I want to essentially tackle this in three sections. We're going to deal with the context it's written in. We're going to deal with who the groom is. And then we're going to deal with who the bride is. Should be a fairly simple uh, breakdown. But but, don't take this lightly because there is a lot of rich, important content in here. Um, So the reason we want to go into the context a little bit is because, because of the heaviness of what's talked about here, there's a lot of people who would like to get around that by you know, placing this in some kind of random context it's not connected to. But if we, if we look at the context it's written in, we can more fully apply the truths in this to our, to our lives. So this comes um, right on the verge of Israel becoming a great nation. So the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt. Then God rescued them from Egypt. They had time in the wilderness. And then they kind of became this, you know, libertarian society with 
very, very little leadership and lots of uh, straying from God. And people cried out for a king. And this resulted in someone called King Saul, who was ultimately a bad king, uh, who God said he was going to replace with a man after his own heart. So um, David became the king. And David certainly had his flaws. But overall, he repented of those. And he ended up being a king over after God's own heart. And then David, David's life was marked by war and protecting Israel's border. But as a result of that, Israel became stable and wealthy. So that when David's son Solomon became king, he was an exceptionally wise king who was, preside, who was presiding over Israel's wealthiest period where they truly became kind of a great nation. Um, and there's a few con- clues in this psalm itself that demonstrate that this is the context, that this is written in the time of Solomon. The first is the title of the psalm. says it's written by the sons of Korah. Um, and there's a fascinating story about who those guys are you know, by itself. We don't have time to go into that today. But in, um, in First Chronicles, in chapter 9, it says that David and Samuel kind of appointed the sons of Korah over you know, the music in Jerusalem. So this psalm is written by the sons of Korah in Jerusalem. Um, the other clue to the context is how wealthy the king is here. Um, so he's d- described as being surrounded by herbs and spices and instruments, and that the queen is clothed in gold of Ophir. Right, so wh- where's Ophir? What does that mean? Well, uh, we don't really know where Ophir is, but what we do know is that to get there, they had to send out this, these long three-year naval voyages and they would come back with gold, they'd come back with monkeys, they'd come back with wood, and they'd come back with spices. And if you look at those kind of ingredients, it probably means that Ophir is in India. But that's not the point. The point is it took a long time to get there, and you had to get there by sea. And after Solomon, Israel did not have the capabilities to you know, go anywhere by sea because there was a civil war and the kingdom was no longer united. So this is in Jerusalem and is most probably written during the time of Solomon. Um, but there are also some pretty significant clues in this text that it's not really talking about Solomon. right? It may be using him as a kind of archetype for something, but isn't ultimately landing with King Solomon. So the, the first clue here is that this song is about the king of Israel marrying a foreign woman who forsakes her culture and her family in order to be integrated into the people of Israel. That's not what happens with Solomon. That's literally the opposite of what happens with Solomon. right? So Solomon marries about 500 women. It's not recommended, by the way. That's you know outright condemned. And... Um, and he and they lead his heart after other gods. So, you know, this is this represents what Solomon was supposed to be, but is absolutely not about King Solomon. Um, but the um, the biggest reason this can't really be Solomon is because of the title it uses for this king. You'll see that the, the passage uses the term God to describe the king of Israel. And there is no instance in the Bible where the term God is used of a person in a positive way. 
right, there's a psalm that Jesus quotes that says, that says, oh, behold, you are gods. But the very next verse is, and you shall die like men, right? It's not a title you want unless you're God, right? It's not a title that God shares with anyone else. Yet the Messiah is called God in this passage, right? So um, what, what do we do with this? Because the, the king is called God, yet this clearly comes in the time of David and Solomon, which Israel is a strictly monotheistic society, right? They believe in one God. So why, why are we calling the king God? And the key to this is understanding what God had promised to David just a generation earlier. In 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13, God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you who should come from your body and I'll establish his throne forever. So this is what God promises King David. And then the Psalms are full of references to this future king of Israel, this promised descendant of David. Psalm, the second Psalm starts with this promise that the son of David will rule the nations forever. He's even called the son of God in this psalm. Another time, you know, David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So there's, all throughout the psalms, there's this character of this um, mysterious future king who is going to rule all the nations. So who is this, right? So this is, So this is where the word Messiah comes in, right? So this passage uses the term anointed, right? And anointed is literally the term Messiah in Hebrew. That's what the word Messiah means. So the, the picture is that this is a king being anointed with oil to show God's favor on him and his commission for the job he has to do. And the Messiah in the Psalms is unmistakable. The Messiah is the future king of the whole world who's going to rule every nation forever. Really in the place of God himself because kingship in the Bible only belongs to God. Yet this Messiah lives forever. He has these kind of divine attributes. So the Hebrew word for anointed is Messiah. Does anybody know what the Greek word for Messiah is? Christ, that's right. So when you hear the term Jesus Christ, you shouldn't think of it as a last name, like the son of Mary and Joseph Christ, right? <laughs> That's not what it is. It means something very specific. It's a very specific claim that he's making. It's not just a random aside. The word Christ means Messiah, which means that Jesus, when he claims to be the Messiah, is claiming to be the divine king of Israel, who is a descendant of David, who is destined to rule every nation on earth forever. It's a serious claim. So this psalm is talking about the Messiah, and therefore it is talking about Jesus. So let's have a look um, you know, at what it says about this king. What can we learn about Jesus from this psalm? So you know, there's, there's kind of three we sort of three attributes here. We see, you know, some his character. We see his victory, and we see his divinity. So, the verses talk about um, in uh, 
in verse 2. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth, meekness, and righteousness. So, what kind of threw me off a little bit when I started reading this is it's, you know, there's a lot of verses talking about his kind of physical description and, you know, what he smells like, right? And, and the, the point here is it should not be about, you know, literally what Jesus looks like and smells like or literally what the Messiah looks like and smells like, but it's, it's using this to represent the kind of, you know, person he is. And I don't think the main takeaway here is, oh, he's so handsome. I'm, I'm sure you've all met people right, whose kind of like character somehow seems to kind of like radiate off their face. Like it makes me think of an old mentor of mine. Um, you know, as far as, you know, he's, he's probably an average looking man. Sorry, Greg. Um, but he has this kind of like kingly quality about him. That this kind of character just kind of like radiates on his face. And I know we've all experienced that, even though it's kind of hard to grasp. And I think that is what's being talked about here with this king, and he's kind of got this, this radiant character who, that just echoes out of him. And the way it's described here is truth and meekness, right? And, and truth is kind of obvious and on the nose, but what, is, what does meekness mean? We kind of think of, you know, weakness, but that's not what's being portrayed here. Meekness, biblically, talks about strength being under control, right? Having all this power, having all this ability, and, and being lowly with it, using it to bless others, not to control others, not to bully others, but having your strength under control. And that is entirely the character of Jesus. Meekness. His strength is under control. He's the most powerful being in the universe. Yet he's gentle and lowly with us. That is the king being described here. The, the next part of this king it talks about is his victory. It says, let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. So what, what does that mean? Right? This sounds like this kind of militaristic conqueror, uh, and which is not typically how we think of Jesus. And that's not how Jesus is. He's not, he hasn't been going around forcing people to become Christians. He never picked up a sword in his life. That's not what his kingdom was ultimately about. Yet, here we are, 2,000 years later. He's the most famous man in history. We're living in the year 2018, right? right? That's what today is. Living in the year 2018, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Jesus has wrought such a victory in history. He's saved so many people that history has literally been split down the middle, defining life as before Jesus and after Jesus. And his kingdom is the greatest kingdom on earth that spans across many nations, right? And this was, you know, and this was written a thousand years before Jesus was born, right? This is talking about this nation state, right? That's you're pretty impressive at the time, but by the time this Messiah came, it was just a province of the Roman Empire. It had no significance. Yet here we are bowing down to its king this morning, you know, thousands of miles away. Jesus is this messianic king. He has won this victory, and the victory is going to keep going. But probably the most interesting point of this text is it talks about his divinity. Verse 6, read with me. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. 
Therefore God, your God, has anointed you. There it is, anointed, there's the Messiah. God is the Messiah. With the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory places, stringed instruments make you glad. So right there in the text, the Messiah is called God. The Psalms see this promised future king as both a descendant of King David and God himself. It's right here in the text. Um, and, And this can be a little difficult for us, but what we need to understand is the concept of divine revelation, right? Because we are created beings. We are created by God, which means that we cannot possibly hope to understand God unless he communicates something of himself to us. And that's what the Psalms are. It's God communicating to us about himself. So when God speaks, it's not our job to apply math. It's not our job to figure out, okay, well, how does you know, God's nature work? Um, we simply have to accept what he says to us because we are creatures and he is the creator. I'm not saying we should switch off our logical minds at all. But what I will say is this. If the God you conceptualize in your head, you can understand every single facet of him, there's a very good chance that you've made that God up because he fits inside your head. How could the God who created the universe fit inside your head? So we should expect to be able to understand him to some extent because he made us to understand him. He communicates with us. But we should also expect to come to points where we are kind of blown away by mystery at some point as well. And this is one of those points because we see from the Bible that there is only one God. The mantra of the people of Israel uh, is, is this phrase, Shema Yisrael Yahweh Elohino Yahweh Echad, which means here, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. Right? That is, the, that is the bread and butter of the people of Israel's theology. There is one God. Yet at the same time, right here, the Messiah is called God by God. So there's this kind of distinction of persons here, yet one God. So what, what's going on? And, and this is how the New Testament would um, describe this for us. In, first, in, in, in John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's talking about Jesus. You just keep reading, it kind of clearly equates the word with Jesus in that chapter. So you have this word that is distinct from one person of God, yet still God himself. And that's exactly what's going on in this passage. Um, And in other places in scripture, we see someone called the Holy Spirit called God as well. So what's going on? Are there three gods? Is there one God? And um, the truth is there's only one God. Yet there are three distinct persons who are called God, right? There's, there's, there's the Father, there's this, the Word or this um, divine Messiah who is Jesus, and then there is the Holy Spirit. Um, all distinct as persons, but one being, right? So each and every one of you is a human being, right? That, that is what you are, um, and your name is who you are, right? So each and every one of you is one what and one who, There is one God, there's one being of God, but three persons. So instead of being one being in one person, there is one being of God, one what with three who's, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And that is what we're seeing in the text today. Um, 
And just to, and again, we're going here because we want to see that Christians did not make this up, right? A thousand years before Jesus walked the earth, right here, the Messiah is called God, alongside God. One God, three persons, eternally existing. So that begs the question then, well, why? Why did God become a man? Why did the Son of God become the Son of David? And the text tells us, it talks about this marriage, this wedding, right? So what's being presented here is God taking a wife. And I just want to give a quick shout out to the guys in here who, when we're talking about marriage metaphors in the Bible, start to feel uncomfortable, right? My, my hope is not to feel, make you feel feminine by this. That's not the goal here. This is, it's a metaphor, right? The Bible values your masculinity for men, femininity for women. That, that's very important, right? And when we use marriage metaphors, it's not an undermining of that. And I say that because I know who you are because you're me. I, I, feel, uh, uncom- I can feel uncomfortable when I, when I hear these things. So I just want to say that out loud so you can relax and enjoy what Scripture is saying to you without feeling emasculated here. Um, so what does, this, what does this mean? So Ephesians 5, um, verse 25, um, tells us uh, to husbands, love your wives as Jesus loved the church, as, as Christ loved the church. The, the Messiah loved the church, right? Um, and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Just as Christ does, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what that passage is saying is that marriage itself is a metaphor, right? This, this psalm here is not the metaphor being used to describe something bigger. Our lives are the metaphor, here to communicate truths about our creator, right? And that's what marriage is. And what that metaphor communicates is the story of human history, that Jesus, the king of Israel, God himself, marries a foreign woman. So I don't know if any any of you guys here come from families who would be, you know, mortified if you married outside of your culture. But that's kind of what Israel would be like, that you had to be Jewish in order to marry somebody who's Jewish. There's these you know, rigorous rules of um, separation from uh, you know, the Jewish people and Gentiles. And what that's there to communicate is holiness, that ultimately God is holy, his people are holy, and those who are not connected to him are not holy. So we as non-Jewish people, in the, in the eyes of the Jewish law, would be seen as unclean, right? That we're unable to enter the presence of God. We're, we're kind of, we're scandalous. We're unapproachable. Yet, what's happening in this psalm 
is that the king of Israel is marrying a foreign woman. And that's what's talked about in the text here. Um, so you see these descriptions of this woman who's you know, leaving her, father, her, you know, her native country. She's uh, marrying the king of Israel. She's told to kind of forget everything and leave everything behind. And she marries the king of Israel. So when, don't, don't make eye contact with anyone else while I ask you this question. Um, but have you ever you know, met a couple or a married couple or been to a wedding when there's a clear kind of mismatch in, you know, in someone being out of their league, right? <laughs> Again, don't make any eye contact. But um, <laughs> um, that is what's going on here, right? There's a huge mismatch in this marriage that this, you know, divine Messiah is marrying this foreign woman. And that's the story of human history that God entered into history as Jesus to die for people who did not know him, who were foreign, who were not part of his nation and culture. And that's, and that's us here today. So collectively, as the church, as the gathered people of God, that's what church means, right? we are called the bride of the Messiah. This is talking about us. It's talking about you and me collectively as the, as the bride of Christ. And what that means is that, we've received, that, we've, that Jesus came into human history. He gave himself up on the cross for our sin and our shame and uncleanness. For everything about us that's bad. So that we could be clothed in gold and be glorious as his bride ruling the world alongside him. To be the queen of history. Right, that's the honor we get for being part of Jesus' church. And you see this kind of, there's this imagery here of these multicolored fabrics being woven together to make this one, you know, dress that this queen is wearing. And that's, that's what we're like. We're a people who've come together out of every tribe and every nation to glorify God by reigning with him forever. That is the church. She is beautiful. She is glorious. She didn't earn this herself, right? We don't, we're not inherently amazing. But because Jesus has died for us, because he's raised from the dead, because he's been seated a lot as king over all human history, every nation, he's his Messiah, we are there with him. So marriage itself, this wedding, is there to symbolize what human history is is about, and it's about God rescuing his people. So every time you're at a wedding from now on, think about what's being symbolized there. And this, by the way, is why the Bible takes marriage so seriously. Why God cares about who we marry, and that we stay committed, and that we honor him, and that we remain faithful. Because it's not just about us. It's about symbolizing what life is ultimately about. This divine king coming to rescue his foreign queen, and ruling the world together, right? That's what your marriages symbolize, so take them seriously. What's also interesting is that this woman, if you notice, is the one who the psalm is written to. Now, he does say at the beginning, you know, I address my verses to the king, but the admonition here, this kind of question, actually goes to this this queen. So uh, in verse 10, it says, Hear, O daughter, and consider, 
and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. And the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. So again, this is, this is the charges to this, this woman here, which again is another clue that this isn't about some random woman in history, but it's actually written to the reader. And you're supposed to have some application here. And the application is this. Um, now, before we dig into this, it's worth saying that family and culture, which this woman is kind of called to leave here, are both gifts from God, right? God gives us the God puts us in our nations. God gives us our families. But these are not ultimate things. And one of the things that we deal with in our culture is that we, we can sometimes treat culture as sacred, that being from America or being European is something that is, you know, more than just a gift. It's actually, you know, an irremovable part of your identity, which is sacred and no one's allowed to criticize, right? Some things you just don't criticize in today's age, uh, people's families and people's cultures. They're just, you know, untouchable. Um, and the reason, of, the reason for this, I think, is because in the spiritual climate we're in, which, doesn't, which tries to avoid thinking about deeper eternal things, family and culture are one of the biggest ties we have to something that feels bigger than us. So, so what more meaningful thing could there even be in our lives than family and culture? Um, So, you know, even if we live in cultures that we don't like, we still have this. We still have this attachment to our cultures. So, yes, my nation's food may be terrible. We're not good at sports, but I'm English. And there's no, uh, there's no getting away from that. And some of us come from, you know, very dysfunctional families who we're just, you know, constantly frustrated by. But if anybody criticizes them, you know, even if we agree with what's being said, we'll jump on them and, you know, attack them for daring to, you know, see what they see wrong. Um, then this is because we intrinsically have this need to feel connected to something bigger. But, and this is why the marriage metaphor is used, because in the Bible, we are told to honor our mother and father, right? Speaking of which, I actually need to text my dad back. Um, I'll do that later. Um, and we're told to, you know, love our cultures. That's, that's something that's valuable biblically. Um, but it's not an ultimate thing. And this is symbolized by, by marriage. In, in a marriage, you leave your mother and father and hold fast to your wife, right? You form this new family unit. And I don't know if you've thought about this in this way, but marriage is actually a, a kind of a hope and a belief that the future is more important than the past because you're essentially leaving your old family behind you and forming a new one. And for the most part, that's not a rejection of your family at all, nor should it be, but it's forming something new. And that's what's happening with us and Jesus. Right? We're told to leave everything else behind us so that we become part of this new family. And, and for some of you, you know, following Jesus might actually mean that you can't live in your home country anymore. For, for others, it might, it might be fine. It might just you know, maybe you're not scared of that. Maybe you're scared of being laughed at by your family. Being, uh, or, or maybe if it's just, you know, you're afraid of lo- losing that look of delight as you look into your father's eyes. Right? I know this is weighty for a lot of us. Some of you have given up a lot to be here this morning. 
And I, and I want to acknowledge that. But that's what's being asked of us in this passage. Now, for some of us in this culture, being a Christian won't on the surface cost us a lot. And in some ways, that's more difficult. Because it may not seem like we're leaving our culture behind. It may not seem like we're leaving our family behind. And it doesn't feel like we have to choose. But everyone does. Everyone, each and every one of us has this call to lay down everything, all of our family ties, all of our culture, all of our history, everything that's important to us, everything that's important to us. We don't get to bring anything into the kingdom without first giving it to Jesus, giving it to our Lord who we're told to bow to in this psalm. So think about that today. Think about the things that you might be holding on to that are incongruent with who Jesus is asking you to be. Maybe that means telling your family you're a Christian. Maybe that means getting rid of some compromises in your life. But ultimately, it has to mean bowing to Jesus, leaving everything behind, and clinging to him as your Lord and, as the, and being part of his new people. But it doesn't end there, right? There's actually a promise um, for more to happen. So if you look at verse 16, it says, In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. So the promise here to each and every one of you, to Jesus' church collectively, that you, know, you see this thing in the text, right? That this woman gives up her father's house, right? She lays it before the king and clings to the king. Yeah, it says, in place of your fathers shall be sons who are princes in all the earth. That means that there's nothing that you're going to give up that you're not going to get back in a form that's far more glorious, right? When we surrender our cultures to Jesus, he doesn't destroy our cultures. He grows them. He makes them more excellent. He makes them beautiful. He gets rid of the flaws and makes them truly God-honoring. When we surrender our family life to God, we don't, most of the time we won't lose our family. We'll gain tools to better, better steward our family, to better honor our family, to love our parents better, to love our children better, right? Everything that we give to Jesus, we'll get back in a way that's better. And that doesn't necessarily mean every single circumstance is going to work out well. Some of you might be disowned by your parents. Some of you might never fit in in your culture. But the promise is this, in the place of your fathers will be your sons. That the legacy that you'll get to contribute to will be far greater than anything that you've left behind. So keep that in mind and be encouraged, right? The future is glorious. But the admonition is this. As we look at this glorious story, as we look at this kind of royal wedding, as we look at what human history is all about, in the same way you feel joy at a wedding, also feel the weight of this, that you're ultimately called to leave behind everything, to surrender to the king, and to follow him forever at the cost of everything else. So think about that. Lord God, thank you for these people. Thank you for your word. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for weddings and life and everything you've given to us. I ask that as we go out from here, your word would 
make us alive, that you'd make us devoted to you, and that we'd um, have a glorious future that glorifies you and loves our neighbors. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Can we thank our brother James for leading us this morning? It's a good word for us to hear. We're grateful for you, brother. Uh, Well, let's take some time now and let's respond to what we've been taught this morning. Uh, We'll respond in several ways. We'll respond through the receiving of the Lord's Supper together and we'll respond through singing. But first, we'll respond through the giving of our tithes and offerings. So if our financial stewards would come, we'll go ahead and begin our response this morning through giving. Now, if you're new or if you're a guest, uh, I want to remind you that um, we see this giving time as worship, just like any other part of the service. This is a worshipful act for us. Uh, But if you're a guest today, then we also want you to to know that you're under absolutely no obligation to give. We wouldn't want to take that opportunity away from you, but please don't feel obligated in any way. For the rest of us who will be giving, we want to give as the scriptures instruct us, which is joyfully and cheerfully. Amen. And if you have questions about how to give other than through the baskets coming around, there's a little bit of information for you on the screen about how to text to give, how to give uh, on our website. Um, there's also instructions in the weekly that you were handed when you came through the door up at the, bot- at the bottom. There is some instructions there, I think, on how to text to give. And then, as with everything else, you can talk to the folks at the Connect Desk if you have questions, and they can get you pointed in the right direction as well. I'll go ahead and invite the band to come back and join us, too. And uh, as, they pre- as we prepare to respond by the taking of the Lord's Supper together. And we respond by taking the Lord's Supper together each week in order to help us as Christians to pause and to remember Jesus' body broken for us, which we remember through the taking of bread, and Jesus' blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins, which we remember through the drinking of juice. And as the band gets ready, if they'd go ahead and just play underneath me, I'm going to read for us the Apostle Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 11. And it's here that Paul reminds us of Jesus' instructions to his disciples concerning this memorial meal that we call the Lord's Supper. Paul here saying this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Sound City, let's reflect together now on Jesus' body and blood given for us. And then as you're ready... Go ahead and prayerfully receive the bread and the juice in the name of our Lord Jesus. And then we'll join together in singing praises to his name after that. Go ahead and reflect now.